Thank you, Jenny, very much, and a very good evening uh, to all of you. Lovely to be with you tonight. Thank you for being here. Um, advance warning, I'm going to be a tiny bit rude about people who like fishing. Um, so if that's you, uh, just kind of apologies. I'd like to get it out there um, as early as possible. Um, it's, it's just <laughs> net, gentle, good-natured banter, uh, but I just thought I'd warn you. Uh, which came first? Uh, the chicken or the egg? It's the perennial question. It, you know, I remember thinking about it as a kid, and I thought really hard about it. I was thinking, well, it's, it's an either-or. It's got to be one or the other, and I just go round and round and round in circles. You think it's the egg? Yeah, but who laid the egg? Chicken. Yeah, so it's the chicken. <laughs> See, I'm round and round we go. <laughs> it's, it's, tr it's tricky. Um, there's another... Um, similar thing about chicken and egg, which is some people say, looking at the history of the church, they say the thing that came first was the church, a, a gathering of people. And then after a while, once the church had been going for maybe 20, 30, 40 years, then it says they started to believe in this thing called the resurrection. And so they started to rewrite history and rewrite the beginnings of the movement of the church so that they looked back on a time when there was a resurrection. That is not the way the church started. And so tonight we're going to be doing a little bit, in a sense, of history, uh, which some of you love. I'm, I love history. Some of you don't love. I'm sorry. Uh, but in a sense, it's important for us to understand that the, the church started as an enormous surprise. No one was expecting it to happen. And the thing that kicked, kick-started the church into life was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we're going to look at that in a variety of different ways, but particularly through this amazing story of um, Jesus' appearance to the disciples on the seashore. Now, if you've had a chance to read uh, any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, you will know that all of them have different sets of resurrection appearances. And uh, there's a little bit that's shared. There's quite a lot that is individual uh, to each Gospel. Uh, but in, in each of them, it's really, really clear, the way it's written, that the resurrection was an enormous surprise. And I, I love the authenticity of that. So it's not, it's not written uh, in a way that kind of implies that everybody knew what was going on, nobody was surprised, no one doubted what was going on. It's very human in the sense that when the resurrection first happens, most people don't believe it was true. People doubt, people are confused, people take quite a while to fully get their heads around what is going on. Jesus' coming back to life was a massive shock. It was a startling intrusion into the life of the disciples. And it took a while for the enormity of what had happened uh, to sink in. It took a while for people to understand, well, if that, if that happened, and my eyes are telling me that that happened because I'm, I'm talking to Jesus... If that happened, then it really made them think very deeply. If, if, if Jesus is alive again, what does that say about his death? What does that say about who he is 
and who he was. We're going to try and unpack a little bit of that tonight. In these resurrection appearances, Jesus is still Jesus. They, they know who he is. He doesn't look particularly different, but they're seeing him in a new light. And all that was true of him before his death is still true of him now. But somehow there's, there's more. Or we're seeing it in 3D, whereas before we were only seeing it in 2D. If you've watched uh, Lord of the Rings films, uh, this is exactly what Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings, this is exactly what he was trying to do in his portrayal of Gandalf. Do you remember, remember Gandalf uh, before uh, he descends uh, into the, to the darkness inside the mountain, uh, fighting the Balrog, and then afterwards he goes down as Gandalf the Grey, and he comes back as Gandalf the White. And the poor little hobbits are completely confused because they were sure that they'd seen him fall to his death. But yet, here he is. He sounds the same. He looks the same. He's glowing a little bit more, and he's wearing white now. Uh, but that's what uh, Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, was, was trying to do in his portrayal of uh, the character of Gandalf. But let's get back uh, to the story in, um, at the start of the story, Peter simply says, I'm going out to fish. I mean, whoever said that? What a ridiculous thing. But there we go. And Peter and the other disciples, if you remember, had deserted and betrayed Jesus uh, when it came to the crunch in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of the women closest to Jesus uh, had uh, found an empty tomb on that first Easter morning. John and Peter had raced to the tomb, but they'd found it empty. And as we were looking at last week, Jesus appears to all of the disciples in the upper room and he tells them uh, to wait. That's the important thing. Wait, he says, wait. Something bigger and better is coming. So we're now in that waiting time. I don't know how you are when it comes to waiting. I'm, I'm sort of average. I'm not absolutely brilliant, but neither am I uh, rubbish at waiting. When I was a kid, this is how old I am, when I was a kid, the thing we had to wait for most, uh, that was most agonizing, was when you bought a box of cereal in those days, if you bought about six boxes of cereal, you got, you could, you got a little token off the back of each one, and then you, you collect all those tokens up, and you sent it with a postal order for about 67p, and you put it in the post, and you sent it off, and then literally five or six weeks later, a tiny little toy would come in the post. And that waiting was beyond agony. Now, most of you cannot even comprehend half the words I've just used. Okay, but this literally <laughs> happened. And, you, and, and it, it was the most agonizing of, of, of waits. It was terrible. I had to wait day after day after day, checking the post. And of course, the thing was, when it came, it was so deeply disappointing. It's a tiny little figurine. But on the back of the packet, it looked really big and exciting, but of course, it's just this tiny little thing. What a waste of time. The, the disciples, they're in this waiting time. They're not quite sure what they're waiting for. Uh, Peter, uh, who was a fisherman, that was his job before uh, he became a follower of Jesus, he goes back to Galilee. That's where his family are from. Uh, and he goes back to his roots, and he goes fishing. And because he's sort of still the leader, most of the other disciples follow him as well. And they go fishing. 
and they fish, and they fish, and they fish. They fish all the way, I mean, all the way through the night. Who fishes all the way through the night? Absolutely ridiculous. And by the morning, as is common with fishing, they've caught absolutely nothing at all. It's been a disaster. And that's when Jesus appears on the shore in the very early morning. Notice how gentle and subtle Jesus is. He doesn't stand on the shore and shout out, Hail, I am Jesus, risen from the dead, Lord of all I survey. Come before me with your worship. Instead, he just calls out to them. It's almost playful. Friends, about 100 meters offshore there, friends, haven't you any fish? You can feel their disappointment in their simple no. To them, Jesus is just a figure on the shore. Nothing more. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some, says Jesus. Now, it's an unusual thing for a bystander to say, although if there are any fishing enthusiasts here, maybe you've been given some unhelpful advice as you've toiled over those many hours trying to catch a fish. It's clear they don't know it's Jesus who's giving this advice, but immediately they encounter a huge shoal of fish. And it's John. John in this gospel that he wrote is often called the beloved disciple. It's kind of like his nickname. And John was one of those people, I'm not one of them, but he is one of them, who tended to see what was going on before anybody else. So John always got what was happening about 20 seconds earlier, or sometimes even more, than everybody else. Everyone else is sort of scratching their heads. John has got it. It's the Lord. But Peter is a different kind of person. Peter hadn't clocked that at all. But the second Peter hears it's Jesus, he doesn't wait. He just grabs his stuff, dives into the water, and swims to shore. He's not going to stand around in the boat if it's Jesus, his Jesus, the Jesus that he betrayed, the Jesus he hasn't said sorry to yet, the Jesus he's trying to understand has come back to life and is standing there on the shore. He wants to get to him. I often wonder what Peter did, because he, he arrives on the shore, like way ahead of everybody else. I, I wonder what he did. Did he, did he go and hug Jesus? Did he just kind of stand around a bit awkwardly and look at his feet? I can't quite work out what happened then. But there were some things that hadn't changed. Jesus is still the servant. Isn't this beautiful. What's Jesus done? He's, he's still the servant. Do you remember at the Last Supper, Jesus takes the towel and he washes the feet of all of the disciples. And he says to them, look, this is what being great is all about. And if you're to be one of my people, then this is how we show love. This is how we show humility. We, we serve and we serve in ways that are sacrificial and difficult and uncomfortable. That's what we do, those of us who belong to Jesus. And now Jesus is the perfect breakfast host. And he's prepared a fire. I love a fire on a beach. And on the fire on the beach, he's cooking fish, for goodness sake. He's also cooking bread. And what a beautiful way 
to welcome them to the shore. He's the host. He's the servant. He's the person who is inviting them to come and be with him. Now, Peter likes being given something to do. And so uh, the second Jesus says, uh, bring some of the fish uh, you've caught, Peter jumps uh, back into the boat and he drags this big net uh, full of fish, uh, 153 in all. Uh, We can get lost down that number. To me, it seems clear that that's definitely a factual number that John is wanting to include in his story. It says, because it's a big number. You know, if you went to the fishmongers or went into Sainsbury's tomorrow and you ordered some fish, you're not going to be saying, I'd like 153 fish, please. So a lot of, it's a lot of fish, isn't it? It's not, it's, not just a, it's not enough to feed a few people. It's enough to feed a vast array of people. And that, to me, seems to be uh, the important part. Uh, but there's, we also need to remember that it was, um, it says, this experience should have reminded the disciples about something that took place right at the start of their uh, relationship with Jesus. Uh, if you go back to Luke chapter 5, pretty much exactly the same thing happened. Uh, Jesus commandeered a couple of the disciples' boats and because uh, there were so many people pressing around to hear Jesus speak that they couldn't get everybody in. So they were in a little bay. And so Jesus commandeered a couple of boats, went and stood on the boats in the bay. The crowd was sort of all around him like a natural amphitheater. And then he, he, he talked to everybody. And these fishermen just had to sort of sit and listen to Jesus as he talked. And obviously they were quite moved and challenged by what he said. And then at the end of that, Jesus says, well, come on then, put down your nets, let's catch some fish. And they're thinking, you know, you're, you're a carpenter's boy and a preacher, and you're telling us fishermen where to fish. We, actually, we've been fishing all night. We've caught nothing. But there's something about the way that Jesus asked that question. And they put down their nets, and they catch an enormous amount of fish. We don't know how many that time. And they, they, they struggle to bring it all back on board. So that was how they got, many of them first met Jesus with an experience that was very similar. And so that, to me, suggests that what Jesus is doing here is he's saying to them, look, when we all got together originally, the reason that we got together was so that you, with me, could be part of God's kingdom. And you, with me, could be the means by which we draw many different people into the kingdom. And one of the images that Jesus uses of that is is letting down the nets. It's not really a a way that many of us fish in this country, certainly not personally. We're used to sort of seeing nets off the back of big boats but the, the image there is, is of a small boat uh, with a, a, a quite a big area of net, and you let it down, and then you draw it in, and you try and catch as many fish as you can. And Jesus uses this image as an image of our calling, that we live in a world where many, many, many people are far from God. And many, many people, as 
so many of us have been previously, are lost and far from God and seeking meaning and purpose and love and a rescue. Now, we don't do the rescuing, but we do know the rescuer. And so Jesus, in a sense, by redoing this experience of them catching this huge number of fish, in a sense, he's, he's re-energizing them and recommissioning them and saying, look, that was, the, that was the plan. And things went terribly wrong. But that is still the plan. And the plan looks massively better because of my death and my resurrection, that says Jesus. Everything is beginning to change because of the resurrection. And what I love is that it, it's still dawning on them. I, I don't know how, how quick or slow on the uptake you are. I'm sort of medium to slow in really kind of understanding and, and taking things deeply on board. Some of you, I know, are quick as lightning. But the, on the whole, the disciples pretty slow. And it's not surprising because these are such huge things that they're having to take on board. And Jesus is so patient uh, with them. So, some things to think about as we close. The first thing is this. Aren't you struck, or I certainly am, by the gentleness and the patience of Jesus? In the end, it wasn't just the empty tomb that convinced the disciples that Jesus was risen, although the tomb was empty. And at the, the New Testament goes to great lengths to assure us it was empty. Just, this wasn't an, an hallucination. It wasn't something that happened just in the minds of the disciples. There was a body. There was a tomb. Then Jesus came back to life and the tomb was empty. But it wasn't just the emptiness of the tomb. It was this series of intimate and personal and if we're honest, slightly low-key encounters Jesus has with his disciples. Compared to Jesus' birth, remember at Christmas, think about all the things we think about at Christmas. We had squadrons of angels singing their hearts out, telling the shepherds that this amazing birth had taken place. We get kings arriving from far away with exotic presents for the child. This is all quite ordinary, really, these meetings with uh, Jesus. Jesus didn't overwhelm them. He didn't bully them into a resurrection faith. He's gracious. He's tender. He's understanding of their confusion. And he knows that their heart and their mind needs time to catch up with their ears and with their eyes. And so he is patient. And maybe that's what you need to hear from me uh, tonight. That Jesus is patient and forbearing and tender and gracious. And he very often meets us in the ordinary. For the disciples, it was in a fire and fresh fish and home-baked bread and a lovely breakfast shared on a gorgeous beach. In one sense, totally ordinary. But so often in our lives, that is where we meet with Christ. In the ordinary. 
And so if you are feeling disconnected from him or doubtful of his love, just ask that he reaches out to you tenderly and graciously and patiently and reassures you. He made you and he knows that your mind and your heart are often racing to catch up with what he's done or what he's doing. So please, reach out to him. He is tender. One of the most beautiful uh, verses in the Old Testament talks about um, the character of God, that he's so gentle uh, that he won't even snuff out a smoldering wick. You know when you blow out a candle, there's that little bit right at the end that's just smoldering, just glowing a tiny bit red. And the picture is that even if our, our, our weakness and our frailty has become as extreme as that little ember at the end of a wick that is about to completely go. Even that, to God in his gentleness, is enough for him to respond to and to reach out to. So please reach out to him. The second thing is we just need to get right in our heads what church is. And here's a way that a lot of Christians, including me, this, here's a way that we do church. Basically, we feel that we are the people who get church going. So we find a building like this one. We give ourselves a name. We start meeting together. We get a great band we get fantastic people to lead our worship. We get amazing people organizing the tech at the back. We gather together. There's a vibe. We think, this is great. And then, so at that stage, we think, well, we better get God involved. And so let's invite him in. And I find it in myself sometimes that, that when I'm here, I, I kind of I feel as though I need to invite God into what is going on here. Now, of course, the reverse is true. It's Jesus who is the boss, or in this passage, it's Jesus who is the Lord. We are here at his invitation. We are here as his guests. And that is fantastic, because that changes everything. We aren't here... Uh, since to tell God what we want to do, we are here as his beloved and invited guests. He is the host. God is the person who is bringing us together. And we are simply here to respond to him in obedience and love and worship. So let's never, never, never. And of course, the bigger a church gets, like Christchurch, the more we can feel that it's us who's calling the shots, us who are in charge. And lastly, thirdly, let's remember that for the disciples, this wasn't simply a nice meal on a beach one sunny morning. The purpose of this encounter for Jesus was to recommission them as evangelists. And to say to them, everything went wrong, 
But because of the resurrection, everything is starting again. And our call is to be evangelists to the whole world. A lot of people write stuff about that 153 fish and what it might represent. I think the simplest thing to say is it represents a big number. And we are called to share our faith with our world and not to shut ourselves away here in the church. And in particular, we are to share our faith with those who don't feel invited to what God is doing, who feel neglected or overlooked or don't even know they're invited to what God is doing. That is what we do. Some of you are gifted as evangelists, as individual evangelists. We rejoice in that. You're the kind of person that can easily, comfortably share their faith with other people. It's fantastic. We thank God that you're here. But evangelism is something that we do together. We share the faith in loving service in our city. We share the faith in building this community. And we want particularly to be a community which is constantly reaching out in love and tenderness, particularly to the people who don't even know that there is a party that Jesus has invited them to. So we're beginning to see, we're in this waiting period where we're seeing that the resurrection is going to change everything. So let's pause at at this point of the service and let's remember that it does change everything and it can change us. Let's pray. Our loving God, we thank you for this beautiful passage. We thank you that you have shown so many times that you are tender and gracious and patient. And I pray for anybody here who is about ready to give up or, or feels that you're just so far away. Please draw, draw close in a way that they will understand and recognize and, and love. Just as for those disciples, it was fish and bread on a beach in the morning. Lord, we confess to you that so often we invite you to be part of what we're doing. We are so sorry. We know that you are the host. We are the guests. We gladly join together in being part of this beautiful family. And we pray, loving God, that both individually and together, we would never forget those who feel excluded or left out or who are lost, who are desperately trying to get back to you. Lord, help us to be evangelists, to share the good news in word and in deed. We ask in your precious name. Amen.